Good morning. For those of you who don't know me, yes, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, we're continuing through 1 Samuel chapter 2, um, essentially through verses 12 to 36, but being as that is an awfully long passage of Scripture, in fact, the whole, virtually the whole chapter, we're going, just going to have a few edited highlights. So, um, yes, starting at verse 12, and my my. Bible's got the headline, Eli's Worthless Sons, so we're in for a lot of fun. <clears throat> now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. Now I'm just going to jump, jump ahead to verse 18. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And then jumping on to verse 20. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Jumping to verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Jump to verse 29. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? And now, um, going on to a bit of verse 30. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honour me I will honour, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. And then jumping to verse 34. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas. Shall, uh, and this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. So, up to now, we've been hearing all about Elkanah and his family, and particularly about Hannah, who had been suffering from infertility. She'd prayed to the Lord, asked for a son with a heart of worship, and God had heard her cry and blessed her with a son, who she called Samuel. 
and she dedicated Samuel to God. And when he was a little boy, he was taken up to the tabernacle, which is a kind of mobile worship temple that was a place called Shiloh to be raised as a priest. Um, now, today, the focus turns to, the, uh, to Eli, the high priest, and his family, Hophni and Phinehas, the sons. Now, even if you've not been around church for long, uh, perhaps you've heard of the great prophet Moses, um, actually came up a bit in our worship today. He led the people of Israel out of captivity in Egypt and they went through the Red Sea and onto the Promised Land. Well, Moses had a lesser-known brother called Aaron who God appointed as the first high priest. And thereafter, to be a priest, you had to be a descendant of Aaron. So you didn't apply for the job of a priest, you were born into it. Now, um, because as a priest, your job kept you at the temple or the tabernacle, you couldn't easily uh, work the land or keep livestock. And so there the were rules and regulations that laid out how priests were to be supported. Uh, they were supported with the tithes of the people, the offerings of the people, and also they were given a proportion of the sacrifices. Uh, and all the regulations are laid out in the book of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. Um, but as a rough rule of thumb, the, the, the fat of the sacrifice would be burnt in honour of God. And the priest would be allocated the, normally the breast of the animal and the right thigh. Now, um, our verse 12 tells us that Hophni and Phinehas were worthless men. Now, in actual fact, the original Hebrew, one of the best translations, it mentions that they were lads. Now, these guys were almost certainly middle-aged. So here we have the first example of lad culture. Um, these guys who have responsibility, but they act as though they don't. All they're bothered about is their own appetites, whether that's physical appetites or, as we heard later on, sexual appetites. So... Um, Imagine that you and your family, much like Elkanah, you've gone on your annual pilgrimage to offer at the tabernacle. You've got a heart of worship. You want to thank God. Thank you, God, for all you've done for me. I'm bringing this lamb as an offering. Um, and it's a costly offering to me, but I just want to offer you just because I want to thank you and say I love you. The, 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 lamb's, the lamb's offered. And then you get your portion back, which is um, to be boiled and you're sitting around enjoying feeling close to God, telling your sons and daughters, explaining all about what God's done for you and what this worship is all about. Then all of a sudden, in comes the priest man with his three-pronged fork, dibs it in. That's a nice bit of lamb. I'll have that. I mean, just imagine the nearest equivalent. If it was your, if it was your Christmas dinner, I mean, that, that's the they've already had the breast and the right leg. He's come and nabbed the left leg as well. We didn't read it, but... Also, what happened, he was sending his men to grab raw meat with the fat on from people. Now, why did he do that? Well, any followers of the hairy bikers will know that fat is flavor. And 
And around me, I live in Heysen Green, on Radford Road, I don't know whether you know it, there's some lovely restaurants, particularly there's a really good restaurant that does grilled meat. And as you're walking past in an evening, uh, you get that whiff, the whiff coming through. It's, it's the smell of a barbecue, it's, it's that cooking meat. Apologies to all the vegetarians here. And it gets the juices flowing. And so, yes, um, I like a lamb stew as much as the next man. But boiled lamb, roast lamb. Boiled beef, roast beef. So, yes, I'm with our two bad lads, Hoffney and Phineas. I'm for the roast, but that's not the point. Sacrifice isn't about what we want. And if we give and it, with one hand and take it back with the other, that's not a sacrifice. Sacrifice is about honouring God with all you are. And what those two were doing was stopping people worshipping God with a whole heart. As we heard, they also were uh, using their, uh, uh, fulfilling their sexual appetites. They're using their positions of power and responsibility. Um, uh, I think we might even call it sexual harassment today. They're sort of seducing the young women who've come to offer their services at the tent of meeting. News of this eventually reaches their dad, Eli, and he has a word with them that this has got to stop, really, but they won't listen. So finally, in verse 27, God calls time on this abuse of power by the religious leaders who are supposed to be setting a moral example to the nation. We hear that an unnamed man of God, which is a prophet, and a prophet someone who just speaks God's words out to people. He turns up to Eli, and uh, he brings God's judgment. He starts off by going over how God had blessed Eli's family, the family of Aaron, throughout the ages, and all the benefits of being a priest. He then goes on to read out the charges. He asks why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel? So we see that Eli is probably a bit complicit in the nabbing illegal meat grab. He's fattening himself on the sacrifices as well. But more importantly, he's accused of honouring his sons above God. Well, what's that all about? Well, Eli is the high priest. He's in charge of worship. He knew what was going on. He'd even had a word with his sons. And just because they didn't listen, he just left it at that. What he should have done is to remove them from the priesthood. He may not have been able to stop them sinning, but he could certainly stop them sinning as priests. The prophet goes on to pronounce his judgment, God's judgment, on the family of Eli. And it's a very terrible judgment. To summarize, all of Eli's descendants would die as young men or, uh, and die violent deaths, he says, by the sword. And the sign of this is that Hophni and Phineas would die on the same day. Now, is this a bit of a harsh judgment? 
we need to remember that God is a God of justice. And he sets his face against all corrupt and oppressive structures in society. In, in the worship, we heard freedom. And it wasn't just, God is not just a God of individual freedom. He's a God who calls for freedom for all. He's a God who redeems society. And he works against all those, all those things that oppress people. And when we work, to, we work to fight against oppression and we work to fight against corruption, we are doing his job. We are working for the Lord. What's more, as we said, the Hophni and Phineas, what they were doing was hindering people coming to God and God isn't going to have that. If the structures set up within church won't work to discipline leaders who are hindering people coming to God, then God will act himself. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 20, uh, we're told that church elders who sin should be publicly rebuked and removed from office. That's what Eli should have done. He should have publicly rebuked his sons and removed them from the priesthood. Perhaps if he did, then his family wouldn't have had to face the terrible judgment of God. Now, in the middle of all this dark and heavy chapter, we keep on getting little bursts of light. We keep on hearing about Samuel and his family, little domestic scenes. Um, we hear about Hannah, who'd given up her son and dedicated her to the Lord, and in return, she'd been blessed with five children. Now, there's a bit of a, uh, a kingdom principle going on there. And I think that also comes out in verse 30 in the judgment of the prophet. When in verse 30, God says through his prophet, for those who honor me, I will honor. So here we come across the kingdom principle that if you give to God with a heart of worship, then you get blessed in return. This is not the prosperity or so-called prosperity gospel that give your cash to God and he'll get it back multiplied. No, God is not a slot machine. God is not an investment program. He looks at the heart. And if you give to him out of a heart of love for him, then you will be blessed in return. Now, as we heard in our generous series, primarily the, the main blessing you will get is that you will become more like Jesus. But sometimes God is just so lavish in his grace that like with Hannah, his blessings overflow into other areas of life. The other um, message that comes out with these little spots of light of Samuel is that, yes, it may all be dark. The, the, the people are being oppressed. There's, it's hard to see God here. But quietly, in the background, in his own time, God is preparing his own man for the job. I believe that this actually is a message for some here today who are in very dark circumstances. Perhaps you... Things are bleak and you're saying, well, I keep on praying, God, but I can't see you acting. Where are you, God, in this? This text today tells us that even though you may not see it and it may not be in your time scale, God is at work behind the scenes preparing uh, a breakthrough 
and nothing will stop his kingdom purposes from coming to pass in your life. Our main message from the passage today is that God is a God of justice and he will bring judgment on all those who deserve it. And in actual fact, if God did not judge people, then he wouldn't be worthy of our worship. Did you notice in verse 25 something very strange? It did not say that God decided to put Hophni and Phineas to death because they would not listen to, uh, to the dad. It said they would not listen for or because it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Ooh. Is that unfair of God? We need to think about the context of this. We've already heard about the sins that they were committing, that they were abusing their power. They were stopping people coming to God. And God does hold leaders to a much higher level of accountability. But also... Let's think about this. They were born into the priesthood. They would have been serving in the tabernacle from being little boys. Their dad was the high priest. They had the best religious education going. Um, they'd served as priests. They were, they, were, they were actually working. They were supposed to, they would be doing the teaching. Um, and I know it's jumping ahead in the story, but we learn that Eli was actually 98 when Hophni and Phinehas did actually die. Now, let's do the maths. Um, at that time, there's no effective contraception, and people tended to get married in their late teens, early 20s. So by my reckoning, Hophni and Phinehas were at least in their 70s, maybe mid-late 70s, when, uh, when they actually died. Um, now... I think getting on for 70 years, essentially working in the church, uh, I think you've had ample opportunity to decide whether you will actually worship God or not. God's judgment we read in Romans 1 for those who continually reject him is to give them up to what they want. And it may be that there comes a time, as with Hophni and Phinehas, that God so hardens people's heart that it's no longer possible for them to turn to God and be saved. See, the truth is that those who live their lives rejecting God and going their own way will eventually get what they want. And that is an eternity without God. And that is what hell is. The great C.S. Lewis, who wrote The Lion, The Witch and the Wardrobe, but was, more, was a, a, a great religious thinker in the, throughout the 20th century, said that in the end, there's only two sorts of people. Those who say, thy will be done, and those who say, my will be done. So for those who say my will be done, that is what you will get. Do we like lists? 
My wife loves a good list with jobs you can tick off or cross off as they're done. What about a list of those that we think deserve judgment? Yes. Who do we think deserves judgment? Yes, the great tyrants of history. Hitler, yes, definitely. Stalin, definitely. Pol Pot. Then who's next? Maybe, yes, your run-of-the-mill murderers, uh, people traffickers, um, paedophiles, rapists. Oh, let's think about our passage today. Yeah, Hophni and Phineas, they deserve judgment. Hang on, let's think. What did they do? They didn't honour God. They were greedy. They stole. And they were full of lust. Oops. I think there's a lot of time when my life isn't actually honouring God. Um, I can be very greedy. Oh, actually, bringing a bit of paper and pens home from work, they weren't actually mine, so that's stealing. Um, oh, well, statistics say that 90% of men and a third of women will admit to having used pornography in their past. So you do the math yourself and work out the issue on lust. Oh dear. Once we start going down the list, it seems very soon that we're on that list. The truth is that there isn't a line to divide good people and bad people. The line that divides good and bad runs through the center of all of our hearts. I was brought up in a middle-class family. My dad's a teacher, or was a teacher, and although we never went to church, we were brought up with very moral behavior. I was one of the good kids at school. I was never in trouble, yeah, a star pupil. Went on to study medicine, and I work as a GP. And to be honest, I used to think I was a good person. I was quite a friendly chap. Um, Bridget Jones may even have said I was uh, nice and normal and helpful in the kitchen. <laughs> if I ever did think about the deeper things in life, I thought me and God would be okay because basically I'm a good person. But then I met Jesus. And he began to open my eyes to see that often I didn't live up to to my own standards, never mind God's standards. Also, I began to be burdened by something that when I was working in gynecology, I'd uh, been involved in carrying out an abortion. Now, I, I'm not intending to cast anything or say anything against anyone for whom abortion may be an issue here. All I can say is that for me, I began to feel a weight of guilt for that. Eventually, it came to a time when I had to come to God and, and beg his forgiveness and ask Jesus to take my sin away. And he did that, and my burden went. It was only after being a Christian for many years, however, that God started to gradually open my eyes to something else. I started to see that actually a lot of the good stuff that I'd done, say good stuff at work, helping people, or good stuff in everyday life, actually when I looked at my motivation for doing that, had sinful roots. I, 
I may have said, oh, I'm helping these people, but I wasn't doing it primarily out of helping them or serving them. Sometimes when I was helping people, it was about me feeling good about myself, see what I'm doing, helping people, or, or, or I'm doing this properly, not like other people. And so, you see, at the root of the good I was doing, at its root, it had sinful pride. Other times, stuff I was doing, <coughs> I was doing out of fear of rejection. If I don't do this, then, then people won't like me anymore. So it was fear of rejection and putting on a pedestal other people's opinion of me. I, I, I literally got to the stage where I was on my face before God saying, I'm lost. Every, I can't even do good without doing bad. The motivations of my heart are, are, are just shot through with sin. And to be honest, I still struggle with that at times. And I don't think I'll be free of that until I'm with Jesus in glory. Now, if you have never got to that position, that position of realizing that your whole life is shot through with sin, then today I pray God will open your eyes to see that. Now, some people may be saying, yeah, great, come along to church, make me feel bad about myself, wonderful. If you are feeling like that, congratulations, you're making progress. What you need to do is get to a position where you can see that what you need is not a clean my act up program. What you need is not a moral improvement program. What you need is a savior. Where do we get one of those? Well, let's go back to our passage in verse 25. Eli asks his sons, tells his sons their, their problem. He asks his sons, if someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Notice they're not saved by uh, being priests any more than anyone can be saved by going to church. What they need is a mediator. Now, in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 4 to 5, it tells us that God wants all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. And this truth is that there is one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. Jesus is the perfect mediator. He's the perfect mediator because he's fully God. And as he's fully God, he knows all things. So he knows what you're going through. He knows the struggles you have. And also, because he's fully man, he knows what it is to go through those struggles firsthand. The problem that Jesus had to deal with is that God's perfect justice demands judgment. And yet God's perfect love cries for mercy. The way that Jesus dealt with this problem was by taking the punishment onto himself. And this involved being beaten and flogged until he could barely stand and then being nailed to a cross. But far more than the physical pain, 
on the cross, Jesus experienced the punishment that we all deserve. The punishment we deserve is eternal separation from God, and that is hell. So on the cross, Jesus experienced the pain of my hell, my eternal separation for God. And if you're a Christian, he experienced the pain of hell for you. He took on himself the pain of an eternity in hell of everyone who would ever give their lives to him. Isaiah 53, verse 11, which foretells the sacrifice of the cross says, after he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. Do you see how great the love of Jesus is? He didn't just die for you. He experienced hell for you. And yet he looks at that suffering and is satisfied. He says, you were worth it. Jesus not only fulfilled justice, but also in return, he gives us his perfect, spotless, righteous record. So, yes, if you're feeling bad about the stuff that you've done and you're feeling bad now, I've made you feel bad about the good stuff you've, gone, you've done, just remember that you're not acceptable to God because of your record. You're acceptable to God because of Jesus' record. And finally, in verse 35, we learn about the promise of the true faithful priest. Now, this has had a number of fulfillments. In, in the short term, it was fulfilled by Samuel. Later, it was fulfilled by the priesthood of Zadok. But, fine, but as good as these men were, they were just sinful people like you and me. That prophecy has its final fulfillment in Jesus. Because after he was resurrected from the grave, he ascended to heaven where he is now the true and faithful high priest for us, serving in the heavenly tabernacle. So now we can stand on this promise from Hebrews 4.14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who's been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. The band. I know it's been a very challenging and perhaps a bit of a dark message today about judgment. But I believe that unless you have a God of judgment, you can't have a a loving God. Unless we see how great the weight of our sin was and how much we were headed for hell, then we will never exactly see how much God loves us. What did it cost God to love you? God the Father had to give up his son for you. What did it cost Jesus to love for you?
It cost him his life. And he went through hell for you. But he was glad to do it. Let these truths melt your heart as we come to worship him.